Welcome to Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and today we will continue with the second part of Article 9, the Communion of Saints. The whole article is, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, the Communion of Saints. Uh, we read in the Catechism on page 109 in my text, The evangelist St. John, writing to the faithful on the divine mysteries, explains as follows why he undertook to instruct them in these truths that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship may be with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. The fellowship consists in the communion of saints, the subject of this present article. The importance of this truth. Would that in its exposition pastors imitated the zeal of Paul and of the other apostles. For not only is it a development of the preceding article and a doctrine productive of abundant fruit, it also teaches the use to be made of the mysteries contained in the creed. Because the great end to which we should direct all our study and knowledge of them is that we may be admitted into this most august and blessed society of the saints, and may steadily persevere therein, giving thanks with joy to God the Father, who hath made us worthy to be partakers of the lot of the saints in light, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 12. The Meaning of the Communion of Saints The faithful, therefore, in the first place, are to be informed that this part of the article is, as it were, a sort of explanation of the preceding part which regards the unity, sanctity, and Catholicity of the Church. For the unity of the Spirit by which he is governed, brings it about that whatsoever has been given to the church is held as a common possession by all her members. The Communion of the Sacraments The fruit of all the sacraments is common to all the faithful, and these sacraments, particularly baptism, the door, as it were, by which we are admitted into the church, are so many sacred bonds which bind and unite them to Christ. That this communion of saints implies a communion of sacraments, the fathers declare in these words of the creed, I confess one baptism. After baptism, the Eucharist holds the first place in reference to this communion, and after that, the other sacraments. For although this name communion is as applicable to all the sacraments, inasmuch as they unite us to God and render us partakers of him whose grace we receive, Yet it belongs in a peculiar manner to the Eucharist, which actually produces this communion. And then the Catechism continues with the communion of good works. But there is also another communion in the Church which demands attention. Every pious and holy action done by one belongs to and becomes profitable to all through charity, which seeketh not her own as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is proved by the testimony of St. Ambrose, who explaining these words to the, of the psalmist, I am a partaker with all them that fear thee. That's Psalm 118, verse 5. Observes, as we say that a limb is partaker of the entire body, so are we partakers with all that fear God. Therefore has Christ taught us that form of prayer in which we say our, not my bread, 
and the other petitions are equally general, not confined to ourselves alone, but directed also to the common interest in the salvation of all. And there, of course, the Catechism is talking about the Lord's Prayer, where we say, give us this day our daily bread, as opposed to give us this day my bread. This communication of goods is often very aptly illustrated in Scripture by a comparison borrowed from the members of the human body. In the human body there are many members, but though many, they yet constitute but one body, in which each performs its own, not all the same functions. All do not enjoy equal dignity or discharge functions alike useful or honorable, nor does one propose to itself its own exclusive advantage, but that of the entire body. Besides, they are so well organized and knit together that if one suffers, the rest likewise suffer on account of their affinity and sympathy of nature. And if, on the contrary, one enjoys health, the feeling of pleasure is common to all. The same may be observed in the church. She is composed of various members, that is, of different nations, of Jews, Gentiles, freemen, and slaves, of rich and poor. When they, have been, when they have been baptized, they constitute one body with Christ, of which he is the head. To each member of the church is also assigned his own peculiar office. As some are appointed apostles, some teachers, but all for the common good, so to some it belongs to govern and, and teach, to others to be subject and to obey. The advantages of so many and such exalted blessings bestowed by Almighty God are enjoyed by those who lead a Christian life in charity and are just and beloved of God. As to the dead members, that is, those who are bound in the thraldom of sin and estranged from the grace of God, they are not so deprived of these advantages as to cease to be members of this body, but since they are dead members, they do not share in the spiritual fruit which is communicated to the just and pious. However, as they are in the church, they are assisted in recovering lost grace and life by those who live by the Spirit, and they also enjoy those benefits which are without doubt denied to those who are entirely cut off from the church. Not only the gifts which justify and endear us to God are common, graces gratuitously granted, such as knowledge, prophecy, the gifts of tongues and of miracles, and others of the same sort are common also, and are granted even to the wicked, not however for their own, but for the general good, for the edification of the church. Thus, the gift of healing is given not for the sake of him who heals, but for the sake of him who is healed. In fine, every true Christian possesses nothing which he should not consider common to all others with himself, and should therefore be prepared promptly to relieve an indigent fellow creature. For he that is blessed with worldly goods, and sees his brother in want, and will not assist him, 
is plainly convicted of not having the love of God within him. Uh, and the uh, footnote there quotes, uh, re- references the first, first John chapter 3, um, verse 17. Those, therefore, who belong to this holy communion, it is manifest, do now enjoy a certain degree of happiness and can truly say, How lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth and fainteth for the courts of the Lord. Blessed are they who dwell in thy house, O Lord. And we read that in Psalm 133, verse 2, 3, and 5. And so that's the end of the Catechism of the Council of Trent's treatment of Article 9, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church, the Communion of Saints. And um, it's a very interesting ending there, talking about the fact that we are all members of one body and, and that uh, when one member benefits, so the whole body benefits, and yet when one member is um, harmed or suffers, the whole body um, of the, of the uh, church is harmed in some sense. At this point, I think it would be interesting to look at the Compendium Theologiae of St. Thomas. His, um, some people call this the smaller, the, the smaller summa. Um, and St. Thomas treats of the, the Symbolum Apostolorum, the, the Apostles' Creed in that text. And here we find his treatment of the communion of saints. And St. Thomas has it, he has it arranged a little differently. He has this as Article 10, and the title is The Communion of Saints, The Forgiveness of Sins. So there's a little bit of overlap here between Article 9 and Article 10. Um, And I'm not sure just why that is. I think St. Thomas might have divided these articles a little differently he seems to put the communion of saints in this next article. Nonetheless, let's read this text. Um, and we'll see that the uh, authors of this catechism uh, were inspired by this text because he makes many of this, uh, precisely the same points. So St. Thomas, as we read, he says, As in our natural body, the operation of one member works for the good of the entire body. So also is it with a spiritual body, such as is the church, because all the faithful are one body. The good of one member is communicated to another, and every one members one of another, as St. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12. So among the points of faith which the apostles have handed down is that there is a common sharing of good in the church, This is expressed in the words, the communion of saints. Among the various members of the church, the principal member is Christ, because he is the head. He made him head over all the church, which is his body, as St. Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 1. Christ communicates his good, just as the power of the head is communicated to all the members. This communication takes place through the sacraments of the church in which operate the merits of the passion of Christ, which in turn operates for the conferring of grace and the remission of sins. These sacraments of the church are seven in number. 
And here St. Thomas goes to the seven sacraments. Baptism. The first is baptism, which is a certain spiritual regeneration. Just as there can be no physical life unless man is first born in the flesh, so spiritual life of, or grace cannot be had unless man is spiritually reborn. This rebirth is effected through baptism. Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, as we read in John chapter 3. It must be known that just as a man can be born but once, so only once is he baptized. Hence the Holy Fathers put into the Nicene Creed, I confess one baptism. The power of baptism consists in this, that it cleanses from all sins as regards both their guilt and their punishment. For this reason, no penance is imposed on those who are baptized, no matter to what extent they had been sinners. Moreover, if they should die immediately after baptism, they would without delay go to heaven. Another result is that although only priests, ex officio, may baptize, yet anyone may baptize in case of necessity, provided that the proper form of baptism is used. This is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. This sacrament receives its power from the passion of Christ. All we who are baptized in Christ Jesus are baptized in his death, as St. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 6. Accordingly, there is a threefold immersion in water after the three days in which Christ was in the sepulchre. And then St. Thomas continues with confirmation. The second sacrament is confirmation, just as they who are physically born need certain powers to act, so those who are reborn spiritually must have the strength of the Holy Ghost, which is imparted to them in the sacrament, in order that they might become strong. The apostles received the Holy Ghost after the ascension of Christ. Stay you in the city till you be endowed with power from on high, as we read in Luke chapter 24. This power is given in the sacrament of confirmation. They therefore who have the care of children should be very careful to see that they be confirmed, because great grace is conferred in confirmation. He who is confirmed will, when he dies, enjoy greater glory than one not confirmed, because greater grace will be his. And St. Thomas continues with the, the Holy Eucharist. The Eucharist is the third sacrament. In the physical life after man is born and acquires powers, he needs food to sustain and strengthen him. Likewise, in the spiritual life after being fortified, he has need of spiritual food. This is the body of Christ. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you, says John chapter 6, verse 54. According to the prescribed law of the Church, therefore, every Christian must at least once a year receive the body of Christ, and in a worthy manner, and with a clean conscience. For he who eats and drinks unworthily, that is, by being conscious of unconfessed mortal sin on his soul, or with no intent to abstain from it, eats and drinks judgment to himself. And we read that uh, in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 29. Penance. The fourth sacrament is penance. In the physical life, one who is sick and does not have recourse to medicine dies. So in the spiritual order, one becomes ill because of sin. Thus, medicine is necessary for recovery of health, 
And this is the grace which is conferred in the sacrament of penance. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? That's Psalm 102, verse 3. Three things must be present in the sacrament of penance. Contrition, which is sorrow for sin, together with a resolution not to sin again. Confession of sins, as far as possible entire. And satisfaction, which is accomplished by good works. Extreme unction is the fifth sacrament. In this life there are many things which prevent one from a perfect purification from one's sins. But since no one can enter into eternal life until he is well cleansed, there is need of another sacrament which will purify man of his sins and both free him from sickness and prepare him for entry into the heavenly kingdom. This is the sacrament of extreme unction. That this sacrament does not always restore health to the body is due to this, that perhaps to live is not to the advantage of the soul's salvation. Is any man sick amongst you? Let him bring in the priests of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick man, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he be in sins, they shall be forgiven him. That's in James chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. It is now clear that the fullness of life is had from these five sacraments. Then St. Thomas talks about holy orders and matrimony. Holy orders, it is necessary that these sacraments be administered by chosen ministers. Therefore, the sacrament of orders is necessary by whose, by whose powers these sacraments are dispensed. Nor need one note the life of such ministers, if here and there one fail in his office. But remember the virtue of Christ, through whose merits the sacraments have their efficacy, and in whose name the ministers are but dispensers. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and the dispensers of the mysteries of God. That's in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4. This, then, is the sixth sacrament, namely orders. Finally, we have matrimony. The seventh sacrament is matrimony, and in it men, if they live uprightly, are saved, and thereby they are enabled to live without mortal sin. Sometimes the partners in marriage fall into venial sin when their concupiscence does not extend beyond the rights of matrimony. But if they do go beyond such rights, they sin mortally. By these seven sacraments we receive the remission of sins, and so in the creed there follows immediately the forgiveness of sins. The power was given to the apostles to forgive sins. We must believe that the ministers of the church received this power from the apostles, and the apostles received it from Christ, and thus the priests have the power of binding and loosing. Moreover, we believe that there is the full power of forgiving sins in the church, although it operates from the highest to the lowest, that is, from the Pope down through the prelates. And then St. Thomas uh, winds this section up. We must also know that not only the efficacy of the Passion of Christ is communicated to us, but also the merits of his life, and moreover, all the good that all the saints have done is communicated to all who are in the state of grace, because all are one. I am a partaker of all those who fear you, uh, says the psalmist, 
in Psalm 118, verse 63. Therefore, he who lives in charity participates in all the good that is done in the entire world. But more especially does he benefit for whom some good work is done, since one man certainly can satisfy for another. Thus, through this communion, we receive two benefits. One is that the merits of Christ are communicated to all. The other is that the good of one is communicated to another. Those who are excommunicated, however, because they are cut off from the church, forfeit their part of all the good that is done, and this is a far greater loss than being bereft of all material things. There is a danger lest the devil impede this spiritual help in order to tempt one, and when one is thus cut off, the devil can easily overcome him. Thus it was in the primitive church that when one was excommunicated, the devil even physically attacked him. And so St. Thomas uh, talks about the communion of saints here by taking us through all seven sacraments, showing us how the, um, the grace of Christ, the efficacy of every sacrament is communicated from Christ to all the members of the church. And so that's the first sense in which we have the communion of saints, namely the sense where the, the good the good of the head is communicated to all the members of the body, that is the church. And then the second way uh, that we think about the communion of saints is the way that good is communicated from one part of the body to another part of the body. Uh, And so therefore, St. Thomas talks about how um, those who live in charity participate in all the good that is done in the entire world. Um, But then he also says that uh, one person can um, communicate a good to another, uh, that is by making some sort of satisfaction. Um, So uh, that's very consoling. And so therefore we come to an end of this, um, this doctrine of faith this mystery of faith, uh, the communion of saints, and we can see why it fits well in the entire article, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And so that's all we'll do today. Um, We will continue in our next episode with the the next article of faith, but but for now we will uh, sign off Thank you for joining me. I'm Mark Langley, and uh, we look forward to exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent with you in our next episode. Thank you.